Amen. And we are living in the light of all of these fulfillments, and we still have yet to come the great marvelous day when he comes back and makes all things completely new. As we remain standing from Matthew chapter 21, we'll hear the word of God. We're going to pick it up from verse 14. Uh, where we left off last time, as he enters in Jerusalem, he comes into his temple, he cleanses the temple, and now these further interactions in the temple court are going on here. Hear the word of God, beginning at verse 14. I'll go through verse 32 this morning. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But then chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you not read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning he returned to the city. He was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man has two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But after he regretted it, and he went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. He did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. And John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. The tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Our gracious Father, We thank you for this word that you have given to us this day. We ask that the Spirit of God would open up our eyes and our hearts to receive these things. 
And that He would make specific application to us in our individual lives. That You would warm our hearts with its truth. You would open up our ears that we can hear. And that we would go and be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And apply this to our church corporately. And that You would bring forth the fruit that You would desire and that would please You. That we would not wither away. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Guess I didn't give you enough time to respond, did I? Uh, I'm trying to teach y'all to be a little more uh, curt on the answer there. As we see what happened in the temple proper, there, this is not the time when Jesus is saying, "Okay, now don't go tell anybody." His time was at hand, and now he was openly proclaiming who he was. He presented himself as the great Messiah. He received the praises as the great King of and Son of David. He was receiving these things and was even uh, had prepared this praise ahead of time for himself for this occasion. But we see in his day... In the very place where God's name was set and where Messiah was declared to come in his temple, that he was rejected. We see a hardened response to Jesus' declaration and presentation as Messiah. Every Lord's Day when Jesus is preached across the pulpits of the land who do that faithfully, there's a hardened response even from the pew. I trust it not be so here today. We see that the works that He did were evidence. And so many times people doubt His Word and, and are troubled with His promises or they doubt particular things. And, and yet He says, you know, the very works that I do, let them be that which declares. Verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. Healing of the lame and the blind echoes back to the very proof that Jesus gave John the Baptist. Remember, John was the forerunner. He's even mentioned later in this passage. He was the one who leaped in his mother's womb when the presence of Jesus drew near in the womb of Mary. Regenerate from even before birth, and even this great prophet had doubts. Our faith is like our emotions. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak. Back in Matthew 11, which we've already covered, John was in prison and he heard about the works of Christ and he sent two of the disciples and said to them, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Oftentimes when we're in a very difficult spot and the, the tri trial wears on and we don't see people responding like we should, it does cause us some question. Jesus answers, says, go tell John which things you see and hear. The blind see and the lame walk. Quoting right out of Isaiah for that. If you want proof that Jesus is the Messiah, here it is, John. If you want proof that Jesus is the great son of David, here it is, Jerusalem. That's what he was saying. And if you doubt, 
Just let the works themselves be that testimony. Remember in John when he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the works' sake. If you had trouble believing my word, look at all of this, take it in, and believe me for the works' sake. They testify of me. The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. The next thing we see are the praise of the children. Now the children were a part of that great processional where Jesus rode into Jerusalem and their parents were crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! The Son of David! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord! And they were a part of the great fanfare the day before. And now, here, they follow Jesus into the temple, where He was there ministering. The temple, as you might know of, had different degrees of restriction. We have in the the outer part of the courtyard of the temple, in which everyone could enter into this particular area. This was the area that was the bazaar or the the plaza that they were using for the great exchange where he overthrew the money changers and he cleansed the temple. And then beyond that, you had the, the court of the women where only Israelite women could then go. And then beyond that, you had the court of the Israelites where only the Israelite Jews could go. And beyond that, only the priests could go. And beyond that, only the high priest one time a year. And so here they were. And the children had followed Jesus into the great courtyard. And they were crying out the praises of Jesus as He healed people there who came to Him. You might remember on the great fanfare, the day before as He came in, Luke's Gospel tells us this way. They all shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory to the highest, in the highest. Does that not echo a little bit back to his birth narrative? The Pharisees went to Jesus at that moment when he was coming into Jerusalem. All the people were crying out. And he tell, they, they commanded Jesus, rebuke the people. You know his answer there, Luke gives us this. He says, you know, if, 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 if these people keep silent, the stones will cry out. That was his answer. If these people fail to cry out in the acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah, there would be such an unnaturalness to it that nature itself would give voice to it. That's what he's saying. Here they are in Jerusalem, a city built with stones. A stone wall goes around the city. The city itself, with all of its structure within it, were stone. The temple was stoned. Houses were stoned. And he says, if these people don't declare it, all of this in this city will cry it out. This was Jerusalem. 
This was the city of which the psalmist speaks in Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. In His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. And here's the key. You're not going to keep this occasion quiet. And what we see in the current passage then is all of the children who were a part of that festivity, mostly, probably, along with their parents, were now in the courtyard. And he takes this occasion as the children continue to cry out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Religious leaders heard this praise. They were indignant. And says, do you hear them? With the implication, do something about this to silence them. That, that was what they were implying. You know how he answers them? He answers them out of Psalm 8. This was your psalm of the morning yesterday. Of which we even heard, prayed, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all of the earth. And then verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. This is how he answered them. He answered them in a quote that was actually going on in its fulfillment right there in their presence. And the little children had a role in this as we notice the difference between the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament, in the particularly quoting of Psalm 8-2, the Old Testament says you have ordained strength. In the New Testament, you have ordained praise. And what Jesus was doing is He was quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which says praise. But also, in doing so, he's given credence to the manner in which the Septuagint interprets that term strength. When we think about the strength that's needed against the enemies, which we often think strength and power overcomes enemies, the strength that God uses to defend His great name and His people are praise, even the praise of little children. That's all is needed. And what Jesus is saying by this quote at this particular time, the strength which comes from the praise of little children is that which God uses to defend His great name. God doesn't need legions of armies or chariots or horses or foot soldiers or great arsenals or nuclear warheads. All He needs, and He doesn't need this, but what He uses is the praise of little children to be His defense against His enemies. That's why we don't usher our children out to children's church. That's why they are invited as covenant members to the table. They have the baptism. They have the table. Even a child is known by His doing. And here, Jesus uses them to silence the enemy and the avenger, the religious leaders of the day. That's how the battle is won. What you're seeing here is an exhibition 
of the power of the great king in his kingly royal robe in the order of Melchizedek, both now the high priest between heaven and earth and the great king over all of the forces, both visible and invisible, that this world has ever known. And he is now going to his work. It's about to be finished on the cross. He will crucify all of the dead in the sinful things here. He will be raised to newness in life, and we in him ascend back on high, sense his spirit, and now the kingdom has been growing. And as the psalmist says, God the Father will continue to put every enemy under his feet until it is all finished. That has been going on now for 2,000 years here upon this earth. It will continue to go on. And the question is, do you believe it? All of his enemies will be brought into subjection under his great rule. And these little children were acknowledging that. And this was Jesus' greatest defense against these religious leaders who were confronting him. Praise. And then we see Jesus' rejection by these religious leaders. They couldn't deny the work. In fact, it says in verse 15, they saw with their own eyes the wonderful works that he had done. The pride had hardened their heart. Oh, deliver us from pride. God deliver us from pride. Pride lies to us. It, when, we, when, we give, when we yield to it, God resists the proud and it's turned over to us and now all of a sudden our, our, our hearts lie to us and we do all kinds of, of things that are just illogical and sometimes unbelievable. And they asked Jesus to quieten the praise that was rightfully due him. The next section after this, when we see this rejection taking place, now we're going to see, for the rest of the chapter, five sections that goes to the end of the chapter. And these, all five of these sections are really going to be focused on a single theme. And what we have in the single theme is a, is a collection and a clash of two worldviews coming together there in the temple, there in Jerusalem, there at the height and the pinnacle of human history in Christ. You've got to remember that this, these are taking place at the most crowded time of the year. Israel or Jerusalem had been swollen with the crowds beyond their capacity. People were camping out in the streets. They were at Passover, the highest feast of the year for them. And all these things are taking place at the very crux of everything, the temple itself. But on his way... He's going to give his disciples an illustration. And that's what we see, first of all, in the incident with the fig tree. The second thing we're going to see is an incident where Jesus' authority is being questioned. And then the next three things are just really one illustrated three ways, are three parables. And all of these things are focused around the consequences of rejecting Jesus. 
The first of these is when he comes to this unfruitful fig tree. Jesus was going to take an example now from the lesser creation to teach a great spiritual truth. And that's what the fig tree is. It's an illustration of a greater truth. Jesus was hungry. He has a natural desire to eat, as we all do when we get hungry. Some of you right now are hungry. And he's hungry, and he goes to the fig tree who had leaves upon it, and when he goes over to retrieve the fruit from it, there were no fruit there. And the disciples saw Jesus disappointed with the tree, the fruitless tree. And he cursed the tree. And immediately it withered. So quickly did it wither, it was miraculous, and the disciples took note of it, and they said, whoa, how is this? And they asked him about it. Now the point here, before we get to the secondary point about faith, but the point here is that Jesus desires fruitfulness, and where fruitfulness is absent, He curses. He did not create this world for fruitlessness, but to be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful for the glory of God, and as the waters do cover the sea, so the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth. That is His plan. Fruitfulness to the glory of God. And Jesus desires our lives to be fruitful. And if the Lord looks at your life and He's disappointed because there is no fruit there, He could decide not to use you. If He looks upon your life and there's nothing there for His glory, the consequence of that could be that any future opportunity may be gone. Fruitfulness in life comes from abiding in Christ and Him abiding in you. Which is what Jesus explained more fully in John 15 with the vine and the branches. But this is a life of a believing prayer. A prayer life that is faithful of this abiding in Christ. And so He teaches the disciples about faith as they marveled at the withered fig tree. He says there as he clarifies and explaining it to them that if you have faith and do not doubt, you can ask God and He'll move mountains if you ask believing. Now the language about moving mountains is a figurative language, much like the eye or the camel that goes through the eye of the needle. Not to say it couldn't happen, but he's using strong language to make a very point here of being able to overcome things that are absolutely impossible. And to ask for things that are humanly impossible. And God, the God of the possibility, answers those kinds of prayers according to His will. But some people will take this kind of passage like this and think that they have to work up some kind of unwavering confidence. And they have a dream or a great desire and they pump that up into conviction. And that is not how you should see this passage. 
If I just ask anything in faith, believing it will be done. I remember the great disappointment of this particular prayer request. I've shared it with you before, but some of you who are new, it's a new illustration to you. It was on an occasion, I don't remember at this point because I'm getting older, was it, was it Christmas or my birthday or whatever it was, I had my eyes on a particular bicycle. There was another occasion where this was a go-kart. Um, and I prayed Saturday night, Oh Lord, I want a go-kart. Give me the go-kart. In fact, Lord, I want it on my front porch tomorrow morning. And I went to bed that night with such anticipation that as soon as I got up the next day, I ran out on the porch in my pajamas and there was no go-kart. I did that twice. I also prayed for a, a bicycle. Uh, and I put the time frame on it. I put the conditions on it. And, and you know, I went away and said, Lord, you told me if I ask anything, believing it would be done. I didn't know other things like, well, you ask them upon your own lust, and you don't ask according to the will of God. I didn't know those other passages like that. But I was trying to pump up my own confidence in faith so that I could then have what I wanted. And that's not how this should be determined. Biblical faith, and the way that we are to pray believing, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's always in accord with His Word, and it always lines up with His will. The prayer of faith that is always answered originates in heaven first. In fact, that's where your faith originates. In the Spirit of God, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And for me to dream up something that will happen, and for me to feel passionately about it, that it will most certainly happen. And as God watches and He sees my conviction rising higher and higher, I come to a closer to reaching my dream. That is a complete misunderstanding of how this verse is to be understood. Faith is a spiritual vision that the Spirit of God gives and how He is directing and leading. In fact, as we see from 2 Corinthians 3.18 that the way we change is we behold. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory. And the question is, can you see Him in His glory this morning? Not with these eyes, but with the eyes of faith, according to how the Scripture has revealed Him, you do. And this is faith eyes. This is spiritual eyes. And it is absolutely fixed and anchored to the Word of God and what the Word of God says, we believe. And when God leads us down a path that He desires for us to go, and we, through faithful prayer and abiding in Christ, claim the promises of God according to the will of God, it doesn't matter how difficult the obstacles are to overcome, even if it is an impossible situation, God will accomplish what you ask. Prayers that are answered this way come from God, and He delights in using us to bring about His will by involving us in it through this abiding, faithful, believing prayer life. Well, the next incident that we come to 
is a text that questions Jesus' authority. We find this in verses 23 through 27. And that leads us up to another consequence of rejecting Jesus. The first consequence, like the unfruitful fig tree, is that, that Jesus may just not ever use you to be fruitful ever again if He is disappointed in your fruitless life. But here we find men who questioned Jesus themselves were ones who were in authority, and they were the religious leaders of the Jews, and these men were also well enlightened of Him. They weren't ignorant of Him. They knew of Him. They knew of John the Baptist. They knew of all of this that went on for the last several years. And they came questioning Him, by what authority? And what is the source of your authority? These men who knew of John the Baptist, and John had been rejected of these authorities. And the people believed that John was not only a prophet, but a martyr. Does anybody play chess here? Anybody play chess? A lot of you play chess. You know you have to think several moves in advance, right? You have to think about the board and how your opponent comes about. And here was Jesus. He was going to answer their question by returning a question. And he's only going to leave his questioners two moves. Was John... Baptism from heaven or from men? You only got two moves. And if you move one way, I don't need to answer your question. Because it will be evident. They were literally caught on the proverbial horns of a dilemma. And no matter how they answered, they would be skewered. But one of those answers would provide heaven and eternal life if they would give it. They did not. They chose not to give the right answer. If they had given the right answer, they would have answered their own question. And they didn't because their question was not sincere in the first place. And the very fact that they refused to answer exposed their own disingenuous spirit and here are the consequences that we all face when we are disingenuous in our spirit and do not yield to the Lord's authority in our lives. Jesus may refuse to answer further questions. No more light. No more answers. No more revelation. It's over. Remember, that's what happened to Saul. When Saul inquired of the Lord, you know, leading up to that inquiry, when he was desperate to hear the Lord, but leading up to that time, his life had been such that he was not obedient, he didn't follow God, he wasn't trustworthy, he wasn't dependent, he didn't believe, trust in God's promise for his life as well as for David, he didn't yield to the Lord's authority in his life, and when Saul got desperate, he inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him not. It was all over for Saul. He had gone past the point where God would not hear or answer him any longer. And that's a dreadful and a fearful place to be. 
When people turn away from the light that they had, they were enlightened. Then God doesn't provide any more, and He takes away that which they had, so that darkness floods the life in even greater darkness. So the next consequence for rejecting Jesus is illustrated now in a parable. Which is as far as we'll get today. And at this point, this is one of three parables where Jesus now goes on the offensive. And we see this parable coming where Jesus then explains about a father telling his two sons to go work. And the one says, no, I won't. And then he regretted it and went and did it. And the other one says, yeah, I will. And he just never got to it. And the point that Jesus is making in this simple parable is very clear. It's unlike a lot of the other parables because even the, the, the religious leaders understood what he was talking about. They answered his question. They, they got it. We get it. In the end, it's the actions that count. Not merely the words. It's the life lived. Not merely what we say. And now Jesus applies that. He said, you know, John comes preaching repentance. And those kinds of people that Jesus described there, they're tax collectors, they're harlots, they're sinners. They believed Him and repented. They changed their minds, they changed their way of life, like Zacchaeus, and they followed Jesus. But on the other hand, when you religious people saw this, you rejected Him and you rejected His message. You didn't repent. You were too proud. And the consequences are such that Jesus may curse you as a fig tree that there will not even be any opportunity for fruitfulness in your life. Or, if you get so concerned with that, He may refuse to answer your questions ever again. The whole time you were just given... Such grace and possibility and advantage and enlightenment. The place you could have had in the kingdom of God is now being occupied by people you never thought you would ever see in heaven. You know, heaven's going to be a surprising place. It's going to be a very surprising place. There's going to be all kinds of people there. There's going to be murderers and thieves and prostitutes, con artists who spent most of their lives in prisons for crimes that they have committed. Perhaps maybe I should use the word former for all of those. And you're going to be astounded at who you see in heaven. And hell is going to be populated by a lot of well-refined, socially acceptable people. In fact, there's going to be a lot of theologians in hell who wrote a lot of commentaries. There's going to be men who stood in pulpits there's going to be a lot of moral people who did good things, but never with a good heart. 
But Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name? Did I not do that in your name? Never knew you. Never knew you. It's amazing, it will be amazing, how the tables will be turned and the surprises that will be met with us. Not because it is God who favors those who are poor and uneducated. Or He curses those because they were educated, wealthy, and had degrees. It's not that at all. It is that the one group changed their mind. It repented when confronted with God's Word And the other group was just too proud to be honest with themselves and come to terms with their sins and follow Jesus. What group are you in? A true follower of Christ is one that has humbled himself, admits his sins. He will not defend himself because he knows it's all too true. And he's turned to Christ. He's changed his mind and changed his ways. And he's a fruitful person. Because whomever the Lord chooses and delights to save will be fruitful. He's the one who's concerned about his weaknesses in his life. And he wants to do something about them. The one whose faith is a lively faith and is at work in his life. The one who loves God and he loves the people of God. And he loves the praise of God. He not only repented once in his life, he lives a life of repentance. And his life is faithfully being lived out, changed. This is what Jesus is looking for. This is what pleases him. When he comes to your tree, he finds fruit. And he delights in it. Lives that are full of love and praise. Love that is not merely in word only, but in deed and activity. Because there's fruit there that delights our Lord. So the exhortation is there are grave consequences to rejecting Jesus. But to abide in Jesus through believing prayer, that, that is quintessential. What's your prayer life like? Is it a relationship with Christ or is it just about doing your deeds and getting on with life today because you're too busy to take too much time? Abide with Christ in believing prayer. Only then are you going to be in tune with His Word. It's faith that precedes the knowledge and understanding. It's there on your knees before the throne of grace that He reveals His will to you. It's there that He relates with you. How much time do you spend in prayer? Abiding and believing prayer because when you come to obstacles, it doesn't matter how big or impossible. You can ask according to the Lord's will and it will be done. He will live His life in you and through you to do of great things, the likes of which you can never imagine if you abide in Him. And there will be much fruit. Much love and joy and peace and faithfulness. Because He is bringing that out through you. He is doing His good will and His good pleasure through you. So be a fruitful, abiding Christian. And get on your knees and pray. Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are for the lessons that You teach us through Your Word. And the exhortations and the warnings you give to us in rejecting Jesus. The rejection of Jesus is just simply 
not abiding in Him and clinging to Him and trusting in Him and repenting of our sins and walking in the newness of life, following after Him whatever He bids us to do. O oh Lord, grant that we would be faithful and produce much fruit in us. We desire not thirtyfold. We desire not sixty. Lord, bring forth a hundredfold fruit in our lives and whatever suffering it takes to bring it forth, bring it so that we might abide in even the sufferings of our Christ and that we might know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings, counting all of the other things in life but a dung heap, that we might win Christ. And so we pray that You would Stir us up and energize us to the ministry you have called us to. And we pray for your blessing upon us now as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.